This is episode 199 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are, How much ammo do I need to stock for SHTF? Understanding and treating the plague? And a new active killer trend and eight ways to counter it. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version, with some commentary, of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, welcome to another week of podcast episodes here at the Prepper Website Podcast. If you are new, we welcome you. I hope you find everything that you're looking for. Uh, besides the podcast, if you're looking for great articles, preparedness-related articles, we post uh, the most recent articles out there on PrepperWebsite.com. And I also invite you to come join the free Facebook group. Uh, we have a great community of people over there. And uh, just recently, man, there's been a lot of great chatter of different ideas and advice. And so I'm just really glad and proud of that group over there. So if you're not a part of it, come on over and, and join it. Hey, uh, recently I put out uh, a, a post on edthatmatters.com called Prepper Gift Lists, Get Them What They Really Want. And so if you're in a situation where, you know, hey, you have a, a prepper in your life that you're trying to buy for, or maybe you are wanting to, uh, you know, create or purchase or even create uh, some uh, prepper-related items for Christmas, um, we do have that little list I created over there. There's some DIY ideas that you can use as well as items that you can purchase. And uh, just those are affiliates. When you go purchase through them, I just want to let you, let you know, full disclosure, that I do get a little percentage, a little blessing from that. And that helps to offset some of the cost of the podcast and the website and the email list and all the other things that, that we go on. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't charge for anything. Uh, you know, I, uh, oh, that's a long story. Maybe I'll go through it one day. But uh, I don't charge for anything. I don't do Patreon. Someone asked, you know, or I've had uh, people over uh, over time, uh, many people actually say, "Hey Todd, do you have a Patreon? Can we donate? Can we?" I'm like, no, let's let's just keep your items for your preps. Uh, but if you if you decide that you want to buy something, uh, and you can go through one of our affiliate links, we really do appreciate it, especially even Amazon. And so, uh, you know, we link to Amazon as well. So that's over at edthatmatters.com, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes as well. All right, let's go ahead and jump into our first article of the podcast. It's called, How Much Ammo Do I Need to Stock for SHTF? And uh, I really, I'm, I'm glad that we, we posted this one because it's actually a, um, a reprint from Prepper Lictics. And uh, Prepper Lictics uh, is, um, is some software that you can use to put, uh, that you can use to track your inventory and different things like that. And they have been advertising on the website. And so this isn't an advertise for them, advertising for them, but they contacted me and they said, hey, Todd, uh, you know, how can we you know, connect with you on Prepper website you know, a little bit more? And so uh, they have some articles over there as well. We're going to be reading those in the future. We're listing them on Prepper website. Uh, and so uh, I was really glad that we were able to do this. But so this, this um, comes to us from PrepperBits.com or it's housed over at PrepperBits.com. But the actual article comes to us from Prepper Lictics. And... Um, so I uh, just wanted to kind of point that out. So if you go over there, you can go check out their, uh, you know, their software, or you can link to it from PrepperWebsite.com. So let's go ahead and read this one because I think it's an interesting read in how uh, they get along, how they get the number that they actually say that you need. And then there's a lot of comments here 
with different people chiming in and giving other advice and other perspectives. And I think that's always uh, powerful. All right. So let's go ahead and read this one. Every prepper knows that storing up ammo is key to getting prepared. But how much do you need? How much is enough? Our analysis shows that the average prepper needs just 1,500 rounds for a battle rifle and 700 rounds for a pistol. Read the below analysis and let us know if you agree. At a minimum, every prepper should own at least two guns, a pistol and a battle rifle. It's great to have a 22 for target practice and small game, and a shotgun is perfect for bird and deer hunting. But when it comes to defending a retreat from a group of enemy combatants, everyone in your group should have a battle rifle and pistol on them. Let's not get caught up in the debate of which caliber or firearm is best. Our group standard is 9mm for pistol and 223 for the battle rifle. So that's what I've been using for the analysis. Your group standard may be different. Just adjust the analysis to fit your firearm and magazine selection. So how much ammo can you carry? If you know that you're going to head into a sustained battle, you'll probably take an assault pack loaded with as, uh, with as much ammo as you can carry, but the typical SHTF group is not going to be assaulting an enemy, they're going to be repelling one. You'll probably be on watch or sleeping when the alert comes through on the radio that an enemy has been sighted. You'll instinctively throw on your kit and head out the door as quickly as possible. That means the most ammo you'll likely go through in a firefight will be no more than your typical loadout. So we'll use a daily post SHTF loadout as the basis for our calculation. At a minimum, you'll want three rifle mags on your chest, one on your battle belt, and one in your gun, so five rifle mags. You should also have at least three pistol mags on your belt and one in your gun. A lot of preppers like to double stack their mags so that they can carry more, but in my experience, double stack mags slow down my reloads and make lying prone more challenging. With this setup, you're carrying a total of five rifle mags and four pistol mags. A popular group standard is 30 round AR mags and 17 round pistol mags, plus one in the chamber of each. Add that up and you're at 151 rounds of 223 and 69 rounds of 9mm available in a given firefight. If you lose your first firefight or get mortally wounded, then you really don't need more than 151 rounds of 223 and 69 rounds of 9mm. But I'm an optimist. I'd like to think that you can make it through several firefights without a scratch. But how many firefights do you actually expect to have? If your retreat is hidden well and the perimeter is secure, you shouldn't have to deal with that many conflicts. Let's say that you manage to get into and survive 10 firefights, and with each fight you completely empty all battle rifle and pistol mags on your person. Given that scenario, <clears throat> excuse me, given that scenario, you'll need 151 times 10 and 69 times 10 or 1510 rounds for the rifle and 690 for the pistol. That's it. Far less than the 10,000 rounds some YouTube experts claim you need. So what about other reasons to buy ammo? There are plenty of good reasons to buy more ammo than you'll actually use in SHTF. Having extra ammo on hand in case others run low. Stocking up for children who may need to learn how to use a firearm. Setting aside additional ammo for refugees that your group might take in after the collapse. Using ammo as a barter item or post-SHTF currency. Politicians may try to restrict ammo sales, driving up the price. Frequently training before and after the event, and hunting and predator elimination. I'm sure you can think of other reasons why buying more ammo is a good idea, but in a realistic SHTF scenario, 1500 rounds of 223 and 700 rounds of 9mm should be plenty. 
If that feels a little short, go ahead and double it to 3,000 rounds of 223 and 1,500 rounds of 9mm. At today's prices, that's just over $1,000 to safely cover your long-term ammo needs. If you've got the cash, by all means get more. Just make sure you've got your beans and band-aids covered before buying that 10,000th 10, round of ammo. You'll be amazed at how many calories you'll need to store for SHTF, and ammo is particularly tough on the teeth. All right. So, uh, of course, this uh, scenario in the, the article is implying that you're going to be in an SHTF, uh, you know, raw situation, a world without uh, any laws, uh, without the rule of law, that you're going to, you know, every man for themselves is going to be uh, what, you know, James Wesley Rawls and survivors, you know, kind of look in every dystopian novel, uh, you know, that happens uh, where, you know, communities have to, to come together. And, uh, and so you have that. Uh, I, you know, if, if that's the case, that's the case, and uh, you know that happens. If that's in the future of America, that happens. Uh, you know, maybe you need to wrap your head around that if that's even possible. You might not even want to. You know, I know people is like, I don't want to live in a place like that. Okay, regardless of all that, I think there's some good information here. Uh, so you, you know, just like with everything, you take what you think you can use, and the rest of it is like, mm, I don't, I don't think that I'm going that route. I don't believe in that way. Uh, but I'm going to, and I'm really, when I started into preparedness, I really, I really started looking at things like that. I'm like, what can I learn? What can I grab? And then the rest is like, mm, that's not important to me. So uh, one of the things here that I really like and that you hear is the common calibers across a group or even like a family. If you're a family and you're preparing and uh, you're, you're reasoning uh, for prepping is that you're preparing because you think that you're going through, there might be a situation like this in the future. I think it's a good idea uh, if you are purchasing firearms and those kinds of things that you are, that you have the common calibers across, uh, you know, a family, across a group, and everyone is, is, is good with that. So everyone has 223 or 557. Everyone is like, hey, we're going to go ahead and we're, we're going to stick with 9 millimeters or 40 caliber or 45s. And, you know, everyone's there, so ammo is interchangeable. You can share it out. You can do all those kinds of things. And so I think that's, uh, that's, that's one of the, the, the big deals, right, when you're thinking about all this that you need to consider. I also think that uh, one of the things, I, I remember uh, Southern Prepper 1 talking about this years ago. Uh, you know, he said, I have more ammo than my grandkids can, can uh, use up, right? And so uh, one of the things that, you know, back in the day, if you, and, and we all kick ourselves on, on this, is if we could have bought ammo back in the day when it was just pennies, right, uh, for, for whatever, buying big, you know, big boxes worth uh, in bulk and stuff like that. I mean, how many of us would have gone back and, and, and made some bigger purchases back then knowing that the, the increase in ammo was going to be so much, right? Uh, and so, you know, all the time there is a scare, all the time there is a, you know, a gun grab. Now, we haven't had one recently, um, maybe because there is, you know, there, you know Trump is, is he's more pro-Second Amendment, and so you don't have someone that's going to, from the, from the federal government, from that, from that highest office, right, come out and talk about, hey, that we need to have gun laws and changes and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, there's not a lot of fear in that right now. I really thought that after Las Vegas and after some of these other shootings that we would see that, although you hear it coming from the left, I thought maybe that we would, we would see a little bit more of that, but we, we don't. 
Uh, just kind of scanning Facebook today, I saw, or maybe it wasn't Facebook, maybe it was a, a news or Twitter, um, where uh, I, I saw that more people purchased firearms on this Black Friday than, than ever, right? And so uh, I, I think people are, you know, people are, are open to the situation. It's like, hey, there, we might not, there might be a time where firearms are not allowed, you know, to, to purchase anymore. So I'm going to go ahead and, and purchase it when I can right here, right now. And you look at some of the other countries and what they're going through and what they're battling and, uh, you know, the protests and, and the craziness that's going on. And, uh, you know, they're fighting with sticks and bricks and, and those kinds of things. So... Um, you have that aspect of it, right? Uh, and then um, I think that the aspect of training, ammo, you have ammo for training. And uh, you need to have some, maybe some cheaper ammo uh, when, you're, when you're training and you're teaching other people to use firearms. He talked about here stocking up for your children then using ammo for, uh, for training purposes and different things like that. Uh, ammo is a barter item. There's a lot of people that will poo-poo that. They're like, no, don't do that. Or yes, do it. Uh, you know, do it in a way that you know they're not going to be able to load up their their firearm and shoot you with it, or follow you, or anything like that. And so, uh, things to consider there. But I think my biggest one is is for stocking up. Is uh, definitely I want to have enough for defense uh, if anything ever happens, right? But the other thing is just it gets so expensive. So how much ammo can you shoot over a lifetime? You know, if you're going to the range all the time. Um, you know, you need to consider that. Um, how much? How much are you going to put away for you know various rifles that you have, uh, the different calibers that you need, and those kinds of things. And so, um, you know, the 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 hunting and predator elimination. You know, we don't always think about that in an SHTS situation. We think, hey, we're going to hunt everything, and everything is going to be gone. Uh, but well, let's just say they're not. It's, there's some animals. Um, I remember watching documentaries that they go out and they drop, um, you know, um, I guess medication for rabies for animals that are more prone to rabies and, and, and getting rabies and, so that it doesn't spread out in the wild. If there was a real SHTF situation, uh, you wouldn't have government agencies doing that. And so you'd have things like rabies running a little bit more rampant now. Uh, granted, I mean, that's the way it was way before our modern society, right? Um, that kind of stuff happened. Uh, but anyway, uh, you, you know, there's going to be times where you want to get rid of uh, predators or whatever. You have a big garden and you have some hogs and stuff coming around. Uh, you're going to want to take care of those things. Um, you know, they said 22. If you can't afford a 22, I would invest in a, uh, a, a nice uh, pallet gun. A pellet gun will go ahead and take small squirrel and even some rabbit uh, with good shot placement, and so you might want to, you know, consider that, uh, you know, having a, getting an air rifle uh, there, uh, pellet gun. So anyway, good article there at prepperbits.com, uh, and like I said, there's a lot of information in uh, or advice in uh, the comments, and so uh, you might want to go check that out. Just different things that people had said uh, that I thought was very, very interesting. All right, moving on. Our next article comes to us from CatastropheNet.com. CatastropheNet.com. They're fairly new to us here at uh, the, the Prepper Website Podcast. And this article is Understanding and Treating the Plague. So I thought, uh, you know, just with all the stuff that's going on in Madagascar and uh, the potential for it to jumping to the continent, um, I think it's just, uh, you know, something good to just kind of have in the back of your mind. So let's go ahead and read this one. 
In the Middle Ages, the plague known as the Black Death killed between 75 to 200 million people, spreading via rat fleas on merchant ships and significantly reducing the global population. Recently, the plague has made a resurgence in the East African island nation of Madagascar. The plague is a bacterial infection that occurs in three forms, bubonic, pneumonic, and sepsinic. The most common form is the bubonic plague, which is spread through the bites of fleas. The fleas regurgitate infected blood from the other people or animals into the bite, which infects the new host. The second most common form is the pneumonic plague, which is spread through airborne droplets from coughs or sneezes from infected individuals. Finally, the rarest form is septicemic plague and results if a plague infection spreads to the bloodstream. Regardless of how the disease is spread or what form it takes, the plague is potentially life-threatening infection and early recognition is the key to survival. Many of the early symptoms of the plague are similar to those of many other common illnesses, including fever, chills, weakness, and headache. However, in the bubonic form, extremely inflamed lymph nodes appears in the neck, armpits, or groan that re resemble large blisters on the surface of the skin. These inflamed lymph nodes are known as buboes, which is where the bubonic form comes it, or gets its name. And the pneumonic form, coughing, chest pain, and shortness of breath are present, which can easily be mistaken with other common illnesses. Finally, the septicemic form causes diarrhea, vomiting, bleeding under the skin, bleeding from the mouth, nose, or rectum, and the blackening of fingers, toes, and nose. This necrosis of the fingers, toes, and nose is the hallmark of septicemic plague. The primary treatment for plague is through intravenous or IV administered antibiotics, including gentamicin, doxycycline, ciprofloxin, and levrofloxin, levrofloxin. Although IV administration is normally prescribed for treatment, the use of oral ciprofloxacin, ciprofloxin, I think I'm saying that right, in a doomsday scenario may be effective. Oral dosage of ciprofloxin for plague would range from 500 to 750 milligrams every 12 hours for 14 days. Oral forms of ciprofloxin are available to preppers and survivalists through the use of fish tank forms of these medications marketed as fish blocks. So, uh, a very, very short article and there's no real um, comments here. I think one of the... the one of the most valuable things, other than, of course, the information here, is uh, there's a picture here of what uh, those uh, the inflamed lymph nodes look like. And so uh, you get an idea of what that would look like. I mean, you know, one of the things that you got to consider is when we are in, if you ever were in a real SHTF situation, a lot of these things look very similar to other things. I mean, you know, like the pneumonic plague. I mean, you're looking at it like, hey, is it a cold? Is it the flu? Is it pneumonia? Is it? I mean, what? You know, it's all these different things that can happen. I mean, how many uh, how many things out there where you start having diarrhea and 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 those kinds of things and maybe nauseousness and diarrhea and like, man, that can be so many things. It's, that's why it's so important to have a good idea. Uh, of this and then one of the things is to, to make sure that you're just monitoring and, and, and you know a little bit about something, something, you know. Um, recently on the Facebook group, I put a poll uh, out and I asked, you know, how often do you read pre preparedness related books? And, uh, and I also said, hey, go ahead and list some of the books that you think, you know, would be 
uh, good for for preppers to have. And um, one of the books that, of course, I'm all I always always talk about it is uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's uh, Medical Survival Medical Handbook. Uh, I think everyone, if you have one prepper book. Uh, that is it. If you want to give one gift that's preparedness related, you can give this gift. And you can really pass it off and say, hey, there's some good uh, essential oils and herbal remedies here that you might, it might be interesting for you. But it, it's something that someone can put on their bookshelf. And if they need to, they realize uh, they might not sit there and read it cover to cover, but they have the information there if they need to access it. If there's a, a, a thing where maybe the internet was down. And so... Uh, I, I just believe in that book, and I always I always promote that book. Uh, I wish I would have wrote it, but of course I'm not a do I'm not a doctor. You wouldn't want my medical advice definitely on that one because I'm I'm going to be like uh, just go sleep it off. But anyway, uh, article over here um, on on the plague, and uh, go check out that picture, man. Just if you just go click on it, go check out the picture that I'm talking about. So you can uh, possibly, if you ever ever have to, hopefully you never have to, but uh, you, uh, you have an idea of what it looks like, at least the bubonic plague. All right, moving on to our last article. This comes to us from ActiveResponseTraining.net, uh, and uh, I love Greg's. Um, his his articles over there because he talks he'll bring something out from the news and then he'll talk about how to you know how to uh, deal with it or how to uh, to think about it and um, and come up with some great ideas here and so this one is a new active killer trend and eight ways to counter it and like I said over at active response training dot uh, net so let's go ahead and read this one here within the past couple of weeks we've seen two active killer incidents with large body counts. Interestingly, the killer in both events started shooting outside their target location. Read about the shooting last Tuesday. I stumbled across the following quote. Because, because there were a series of gunshots about a quarter mile away that alerted the staff and that went on an immediate lockdown without having to be alerted by law enforcement. When the gunman was unable to enter the school due to the exterior doors being locked, Johnson said he fired at the building several times before he headed into town along a two-lane road. End quote. That was a quote there. The gunman fired on the building from outside. He spent several minutes walking around the locked school and fired around 30 rounds at the building. The gunman in the Texas church shooting did something similar. Lots of big historic active killer events started outside and then moved inside. Columbine is one such example. Sandy Hook is another. This is different from both of those. In Columbine, the killers targeted students in an SRO outside before making their way SRO inside before making their way outside. In Sandy Hook, the killer was shooting outside with the sole purpose of breaking the glass to make entry. Neither were randomly firing at the building like our two most recent shootings. These recent killers fired rounds at the building itself to hit people inside. I believe this might be a new trend. In past incidents, I only recall one other occasion where an active killer initiated the attack from outside the building. Other attackers have shot doors or windows to get inside a building, but this random shooting from outside is relatively new. So the question is, what is the best practice for the occupants of a school or a commercial building who are being fired upon from outside the structure? Here are some ideas. First, lock the door. 
This is what saved many lives in the California shooting school, school shooting. When school staff heard reports of shooting nearby, they immediately went into lockdown and secured all exterior doors. The shooter arrived at the school, walked around while firing rounds, and, trying, and tried to find an open door, and then eventually left when he couldn't get in. All right, uh, let me, so let me just uh, stop, just because I have a little bit of experience here from uh, my days as an assistant principal. Um, we always, always, that was a very, very big deal for us. We always had our doors secured. They were not allowed to be propped open. If they were propped open, you know, someone was, was hey, like, hey, what's going on? Why is this happening? Why is this open? Uh, very, very few instances when that was allowed. Maybe like the last day of school, if someone was uh, moving something out, uh, maybe when uh, uh, they were bringing in supplies or whatever, and uh, there were just, you know, one person was doing it and they needed they needed they had a big like pallet machine or whatever uh, and they, they had to do that because a lot of the times you had to take out the metal center pole in a, like a double door situation to be able to get that little machine through to be able to roll the pallet in and so the very very infrequent times where doors were left open or unlocked most of the time they were always always locked and uh, we've and, and I know that my district has gone to where we have key cards now so uh, you can scan it. There's a little scanner, and it unlocks the door. It it you know it uh, it logs who you are and what time you log what time you came in. And in fact, even uh, there's certain like certain people, certain personnel can't get back into a school after a certain hour. Like let's say 5:30, 6 o'clock in the afternoon or in the evening time, you can't get back into uh, school if you leave, you know. And so, uh, you know, they started to put all these safety uh, things in. They're starting to, to, to do better with that. And we would always have safety checks. We would have people from the district would come out and try to gain access to the school to see if any doors were open. And then we also had, uh, we, would, we would try to set up people on our own, people that we knew that maybe weren't familiar to, uh, to the campus. And we would say, hey, will you come and try to just get access to the school in, in one way or the, or the other, just try to walk around. And uh, if you get in, just start walking around and, and doing that because then it was the responsibility of any staff member who saw anyone uh, without a sticker because you always came to the front, uh, the front office, you got a sticker that was scanned in, and then you, know, you, you were able to go, and the sticker always said where you were supposed to go. And if you weren't in that area, of course, you were being questioned. And so uh, it was the duty of every staff member to say, uh, excuse me, you don't have a sticker. I need to walk you back to the, to the office and you need to get a sticker. And uh, you know, some parents would get very, very irate when, when that would happen. But, um, and, and the only times really that happened was when it was more of an outside activity. Uh, when uh, there were, we had like uh, our field days and different things like that. Even in then we had, we had parents who re we required parents to get their stickers and, uh, and different things like that. But they would get very irate. And it was like, man, it's just for the safety of, of the school and safety for the campus, uh, just so that we know who everybody is and where everybody's supposed to be. But anyway, uh, so very, very important there. Um, lockdown, when you talk about lockdown procedures, that's a whole different situation. Uh, that's just not locking down the doors. The doors should always remain locked. Uh, at least they were, like I said, in my district. I don't know what it's like in, in other school districts. But uh, lockdown just be means other procedures that you're putting in place. All right, so um, let's go ahead and continue on here. You don't want this shooting moving indoors 
where more victims are hiding. Keep the killer outside. That denies him access to victims and makes it easier for police to capture or kill him. Don't evacuate. I've been a big proponent of evacuation instead of lockdown in many schools and business shootings. This is not a situation where evacuation makes sense. If the shooter is outside, you want your people inside. Okay, so let me say, again, I have some experience here. So um, in, in training, um, and I'll tell you, a lot of things changed when Sandy Hook happened, at least for, uh, I know for my campus and for the, for the district, because uh, up until that time, a lot of the shootings and stuff, Columbine, that was high school, right? And so you're always like, that's high school. That's going to happen in high school. You know, God forbid it happens in middle school but or junior high. Uh, but Sandy Hook was elementary, and that opened the eyes. That freaked out a lot of people. And I think I've mentioned it before. The beginning of that year, um, I tried to do, uh, you know, I, I tried to talk about being prepared and some of these things, and, and teachers didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. And then Sandy Hook happened that Friday that we were going on, uh, that last Friday. And that Friday, you know, we're so busy at the school. We're having Christmas parties. We're having all those kinds of things. And then finally, you know, a little bit later on in the evening when things settled down, I'm like, hey, um, you know, this, oh my gosh, this happened. And when we got back, uh, when we got back from, uh, from our Christmas break and we had a big, uh, you know, we had a day of professional development, uh, everybody was listening, you know, so I, I, got, I was, did my talk, I did my speech, we did, uh, we looked at what we were doing, we looked at our procedures and our drills and all those kinds of things, spent a lot of time in that and the teachers were very much paying attention now because it was very real for them because this thing happened in elementary. And so one of the things that we were saying before our district came out with, um, kind of with uh, run, fight, uh, uh, run, hide, fight, um, before they came out with that, we were telling them that ourselves. And so I don't know if I was breaking policy there or not, but I'm like, look, uh, I, I told the, the, the teachers, if there is something that, because most of the lockdown procedures would be that you would go into like a, like a, a hiding situation. That was before run, hide, fight. And so you, you would go into this hiding procedure. Well, a lot of elementary schools are, are open concept. We don't have doors like normal classroom. Like, like if you remember your high school, it, we, don't, we don't have doors like that. It's open concept. I mean, you have just open areas, and some schools are more, more open than others. But for the most part, there's not a lot of rooms with doors on them. And so it's like doing this, this hiding thing is so stupid, right? I mean, no. And then what I told, uh, you know, what, what I, I settled with my principal and what I told the teachers is like, you guys are professional. You are smart. You know what your, what your kids need. You know what you need. You need to make the best decision for your kids to keep your kids safe. So if whatever reason, if one teacher decides to, to hide and another teacher says, you know what, I hear shots at the, at the beginning, at the front of the school, I'm going to go out the backside and we're going to go out into the neighborhood, then you do that. And we talked about that going out to, because our, um, the back of our school, uh, we had a big wooden fence and then the wooden fence uh, backed, or the, the the wooden fence backed right into neighbors' houses, and a lot of them had gates that would go into our, our playground area and our field and stuff like that. And a lot of them were open, you know? And so I'm like, hey, you go and you go right through this these gates right here. Go through these gates. And we had a rendezvous point, and we had all those kinds of things. But we were telling teachers, you got to make the best decision for your 
uh, you know, for your kids. And, and you are smart. You, you're a professional. You're degreed. Uh, you, you've got to, to take action. You can't just sit there and, and wait for the principal or the AP or the police officers to come tell you what, what to do. And so uh, here in this situation, uh, what Greg is saying, you don't want to evacuate. If the shooter is outside, yeah, you don't want to evacuate. You don't know what it's like outside. You don't know how many shooters there are. Um, so you really you got to be very, very aware of what's going on and know what's happening. So, all right, uh, continuing on. Stay away from windows and any glass in the room. Several students in the California school shooting were cut by flying broken glass as the killer shot at school windows. Stay away from the windows and any large mirrors or glass display cases that might be broken by gunfire. And I'll tell you, this is a, that's the automatic thing for us is we get away from the windows and those kinds of things. Um, get low. The killer firing outside would have to be very close to the window to fire rounds that would travel low to the floor. If firing from shoulder height into the window or wall, sheltering victims are less likely to be hit the closer to the floor they can get. Again, that's something that we did as well. Turn out lights and close window blinds. Don't provide the shooter with any visible targets. Again, that's something that we did as well. This is, this is just smart advice here, things that you should uh, to consider. Consider moving furniture in front of the windows. After closing blinds, as long as rounds aren't coming through the windows, it might make sense to barricade the windows area with pieces of furniture as additional cover. Most exterior walls on schools or office buildings are fairly resistant to gunfire. Windows are not. Again, one reason why you want to get away from the windows, close the blinds, those kinds of things. If you can move, you know, sometimes bookshelves in schools are, are, are they're the lower type. So I don't know if they would be high enough. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of my old elementary campus. Uh, I don't know if they would be uh, high enough to get in front of windows. Um, but again, this, I know that I'm talking about schools here, but this is also for businesses and, uh, like you said, commer commercial uh, places as well. Uh, all these, you know, these things that you, you're starting to in churches, right? You're, you're having to apply all these things now everywhere. Um, it's crazy. Placing a few school desks or bookcases up against the window may provide enough extra layers to slow down the shooter's bullet before they hit the victims inside. Consider moving to interior hallways or upstairs. If the shooter is firing from ground level, moving upstairs makes a lot of sense. The angle of firing from a person on the ground into an upstairs window almost certainly ensures that people low to the floor upstairs won't be hit. The only downside is that it may be harder to escape a second floor hiding spot if the killer breaches the door and makes entry into the school or business. All right. Uh, if gunfire is coming through the exterior windows, moving to an internal hallway will likely put away put another wall between the bullets and the victims and also insulate them from flying glass hazards. The problem with this solution is that many school hallways are long and straight. They often line up with exterior doors on the ground floor. If the shooter starts firing into the exterior glass doors in line with the hallway where the children are hiding, the walls of the hallway will act as a bullet funnel and virtually ensure that more victims are hit. Moving upstairs or into a hallway might be good moves. They might also be fatal choices. It depends on the structure of the building and where the killer is firing from. So again, one reason why you should know, if you are in, or if you are in an office building, and you work in an office building and you work up, uh, you know, on any other floor other than the first floor and really even on the first floor as well. If you just take the elevator, be familiar with the stairs, uh, be familiar with the stairs where they go. You know, if you go out 
uh, the stairs, can you go up, right? Uh, if you needed to go up, can you go up and can you gain access to other floors from emergency exits? Sometimes those emergency exits uh, are locked from, from coming inside from uh, those exits, from the stairways. Uh, they only, it's a one uh, it's a one-way door kind of unlocking. You have to be on the on the inside to be able to open it up. So check that out. I mean, your your uh, building might be like that, uh, but be be familiar with all the exits. So if there's one exit, uh, you know, staircase that you can go down, or how many other ones that there are, you know, be um, be aware of those. Um, and and uh, so that you you can have different options if you need to if you need to get out in a, in a very quick. Uh, in, in a very quick way. All right, so counterattack. If there are armed staff in the building, they should immediately mount a counterattack. The most effective method of doing so involves roof access. If an armed person can get up to the roof, he or she could fire down on the shooter without being seen. Do your school or office security staff have access to the building roof? Maybe they should. All right, and uh, I, I just I don't even want to go there. It is so stupid that administrators cannot carry. Uh, there are some, there's one school in, in Texas that has given their teachers uh, the ability to carry. And actually, school, school districts, school boards can make that call if they want to. Uh, a lot of the times they don't want to because of the liability aspect of it. But this specific school district allowed their teachers to do it because um, they're in a county where there's only a few sheriff, uh, sheriff uh, deputies and uh, if they had a situation, they were like, be 30 minutes away. And so it's like, no, we're going to go ahead and we're going to carry and we're going to protect ourselves. And you know what? I have never heard of a firearm going off. I have never heard of anyone, you know, being shot uh, accidentally or anything like that uh, at that school district. And it's been it's been years now. So uh, I just I just that's just so stupid. But anyway, don't get me started on that. Um I, and you know, there's some police officers out there that are like that they want they want to encourage you to conceal uh, carry or firearm carry, uh, but then there's there's others that just are totally against it. And uh, I, you know, there are some that I know that are just totally they don't want anybody carrying other than them. And I think that is wrong, 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 wrong. I can't say wrong enough. Okay. Um, Absent an elevated sniper position, armed staff should exit the building opposite the side of the gunfire and quickly work to flank or get behind the shooter before engaging. You don't want to be trading bullets with a dude who's better armed than you. <clears throat> don't just run outside and confront him. Set up an ambush or flanking position and shoot him by surprise. Do you have pre-established external ambush positions identified in the event you encounter a situation like these? Maybe you should. Long-term considerations. If the trend continues, we will see some adaptation. Commercial buildings and school roofs will be constructed with sniper loops or observation points. Snipers or other armed volunteers may be regularly stationed to the roof-based observation points. Exterior school window glass will be covered with a reflective material and or hurricane film to prevent the window from breaking into dangerous shards under gunfire. Security staff will do regular exterior patrols. It depends on whether this trend becomes more common or just fades away. We don't know what will happen. The prudent school, church, or commercial enterprise will review their relative risk from external gunfire and adapt a few of these suggestions to reduce casualties in the event of an external attack. All right. I remember um, talking with one of the guys who was over security. Uh, he was a retired Houston Police Department officer. 
Uh, he was over security before we uh, got an official police force uh, in our district. And uh, talking about, uh, you know, having armed people at, at every school, you know, is it viable? Is it something that you would consider doing that? And um, I remember, you know, he would, he would talk with other people. He's like, I don't know if a school district can... Um, can really look at the cost and, 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 and make sure that that cost is, is uh, prohibitive to what we're, what we're doing, you know, in the education setting. And then uh, I remember he, asked, he told me that he asked, you know, some other people, some family members and stuff, who talked to him about, well, hey, wait, wait a minute. What about, uh, these are our kids. What about when you go to a courthouse? I don't know if you've ever gone to a courthouse recently just for, like, jury duty, you go through so many checkpoints. It's not even funny. It's like when I go, I, I like I empty my pockets of everything. I mean, I don't carry my little, I don't carry a knife. I don't carry anything. It's just like I carry my, my backpack with my computer mostly because I'm waiting for, you know, if we're going to be called or whatever and I'm doing work or I'm reading and, and those kinds of things. But I mean, I go through my backpack and I'm like, hey, I got to take this out. I got to take this out. I got to take this out. And I'm, I make sure that all that stuff is out because you go through multiple checkpoints and you know you're taking off you're taking off shoes you're taking off belts you're taking uh off you know any jewelry that you have you're you know you're laying all this stuff down and you're walking through and and uh you know they have multiple people there i mean they'll have like three or four people at one station manning it and uh and then not only that but you have uh police officers that are kind of watching all of that or armed or armed officers, they might not be police officers, but armed personnel that are even watching all of that. And uh, so, you know, this, this one guy told this, this, uh, this head of security, was like, you know, we, we protect our judges and we protect, you know, th those people like that. Why would we protect our most precious, uh, you know, our, our most precious, uh, you know, our kids? Uh, when it comes to that, you know, uh, putting uh, an armed police officer or an armed officer on every campus, it, it might, you know, it is a cost that the district would eat, but is it worth it? You know, uh, I don't know. And so that kind of got him change his views a little bit on that. Um, you know, the district has done some changes even to the older campuses and making them a little bit more secure, which is good. Um, but, you know, uh, like he said here, like Greg said here, uh, you know, this new trend here where people are, are showing up and they're shooting into the schools or, or churches or, or whatever. You know, do you have do you have procedures? And I guess that's the biggest thing. Do you have procedures lined up? Do you have have you uh, planned this through? Do you have scenarios? What would happen? Um, you know, again, we did that on the at, at the campus. Uh, you know, if this happened, if this happened, we had all these things going, you know, that, that scenarios that we would do on top of teaching kids, on top of all the things that you have to be parents calling you and, and upset about this or, you know, the car rider line was too long and, and all this kind of stuff. On top of all of that, you know, you're thinking about these scenarios that you're, you know, that possibly could come in, could happen and harm kids, but not only in schools, but again, churches. If you're a pastor listening to this, or if you are a Christian and you go to church, have you talked to maybe a head usher about this? Or have you talked to uh, your pastor and associate and say, hey, uh, maybe they have, maybe you go to a church that is bigger and they have security. Maybe, you know, you, those of you that go to the small churches, 
you know, maybe you are the security. Maybe you are, uh, you know, a concealed handgun carrier and you're there and you're, and I've talked about that. We went to a church in the past where uh, there was a guy who's, who was always in the back, kind of always monitoring things, always monitoring things. And uh, come to find out that he was, you know, he, uh, he was carrying. And so he was watching out to see if anything crazy happened. And uh, he was there to, to be on the spot. And so if you're in a smaller church, that's something that you're thinking about. And uh, something to, uh, I mean, there is an article I felt. I was uh, reading, reading my Bible the other day and I, I, was, uh, I came across uh, a scripture and I had this article in my head uh, that it just, I really felt kind of like, even the Lord has kind of given it to me. So I don't know, I'll uh, write it and uh, hear when I get some, when I get some time and uh, write it and put it out there for you and, and, and let you know about it. But uh, I think it's very, very important for you to have some uh, scenarios in mind and, you know, have some procedures in place of what you would do to protect yourself and protect your, if you're a business owner, how are you, how are you going to protect your employees? What would you do? Maybe it's, you know, on some Monday morning, you have a Monday morning meeting uh, very early and bring some coffee and donuts and say, okay, guys, let's talk about this. Let's, you know, 30 minutes, let's talk about this scenario right here or, or what would happen here. And uh, I think you're, um, you might have some people that get a little freaked out about it, but I think when they think about it and the way that you present it, that you want people to be safe and you want people to, uh, you know, you want, you want to protect people, I think they would greatly appreciate that. And that would mean a lot to your people uh, if, if you did something like that. So again, that's over at activeresponsetraining.net. Uh, I don't believe the comments. Comments aren't open. I think sometimes uh, Greg opens comments, but uh, they're not open on this one. But there are links that you can come and check out uh, you know, on this, uh, on this article. And, uh, I, you know, encourage you to do so. All right, guys. Hey, uh, thanks so much for being with me on episode 199. I can't, I can't even believe that. Wrap my head around that 199. It just feels like uh, yesterday when I started the podcast, but I am thoroughly, like I said, thoroughly enjoying it. I love, uh, you know, coming and bringing articles to you. And, uh, I love hearing, how uh, the podcast is a blessing to you um, because I hear uh, I'm hearing more often than not it's like Todd I don't have time to read articles I don't have time to sit down in front of the computer but I am on the move I am busy I can listen to a podcast I can get the pre- uh, uh, preparedness information that way and so greatly appreciate it and there you know we're one podcast there are many podcasts many preparedness podcasts out there a lot of good ones. And so I hope that we are presenting information to you that will help you grow in your preparedness and help you to be more self-reliant. That is the goal. Uh, Providing these resources, whether it is a podcast, whether it is articles, whether it is a community on Facebook, to to provide resources to help you live a more self-reliant life. That's uh, that's that's my biggest goal, man. That's my mission uh, is for people to um, not be so uh, reliant on all the systems and all the the networks out there. Is that you learn how to take responsibility for yourself uh, more and more each and every day. So uh, thanks so much for being a part of the podcast. 
If you'd love to, if you'd like to come over and drop a comment, come over to episode 199 and drop a, uh, a comment for me there. Uh, and also, if uh, you'd like to share out this episode, we greatly appreciate it when people get the word out there. Uh, we make it very easy for you on the Prepper Website Podcast uh, to share it out in so many different ways. And then if you'd uh, like to connect with me, uh, not maybe on the, on the website, but if you'd like to connect on social media, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I always love connecting with you guys and uh, I appreciate y'all for, uh, for the feedback and for you know, being a part of the Prepper Website Podcast. With that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government, grid, or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.